Welcome to Nota Bene, a very special episode of Nota Bene. Benjamin, where are we? Man, we're in a place where writers as illustrious as Mark Twain. Bam! The Bard himself. Dylan? Dylan. Bob. That's Bob Dylan, but also Dylan Thomas. And Dylan Thomas, excuse me, thank His you. His namesake. All spent time here. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg. We are at the Hotel Chelsea, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my God, the new and uh, refurbished and really fucking beautiful, man. It's, it's, it's great. It looks fantastic. I mean, they took an icon of New York City and really just freshened it up. Uh, it's just a pleasure to be here. It's incredible. Not quite open yet, although I, I hear if you do some Googling, you can you can get some pretty decent rates on some rooms. Mm-hmm. There are a couple rooms that they've redone that are open. The rest opening later this spring. New Yorkers. Fucking insane. It's just absolutely beautiful. You can feel the, the sort of energy here, even though it's, you know... A lot of it is about the past, but you know it's also about about, about right now. It's about the present. It's Listen, about a lot Chelsea of people, right now. A lot of people I know people are going to kvetch because people love to kvetch in New York mm-hmm. about you know this kind of uh, yuppification of what was a uh, avant garde kind of meeting place. But they did a beautiful job, and New York is all about change. It's always constantly changing, mm-hmm. and better than they tear this down and put up some glassy, ugly ass fucking condos for Russian oligarchs. Um, they 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 let us have access to an incredible room here. We took a yeah, full shout tour. Shout out to the team at the Chelsea for really hooking us up. Yeah, I got mean, a full tour lobby with a lot of art by former and current res- residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people would often trade back in the day uh, uh, in in exchange for their rooms. So we there's an amazing Donald Bachelor downstairs, mm-hmm. uh, Philip Taff, Taffy. who I believe is still a resident. Here. Yeah, so that's one of the cool things. You walk into your room and you see you know where people are living permanently, and that's always been the case at the Chelsea. There's always been you know people staying here for a night or two. It was like a know. residential as well as a transient mm-hmm. hotel. Yeah, so you have a, a really really special kind of energy that you wouldn't find at I think it's Pier Hotel are really the Bowery, which is also owned by Sean McPherson, who, you know, um, who also redesigned and is mm-hmm. part of the ownership team that, that is working here. So you have the amazing lobby, which you can poke your head into. It's open right now because it's still a functioning hotel for the long-term residents. Um, and then the, we got a secret behind-the-scenes tour mm-hmm. of what will be an incredible lobby bar. Like, the, the design choices are out of this fucking for world. For all you people who are sick of going to Botino for a cocktail before an opening, fear not. There is a new spot. Well, yeah, there's even an event room that they picked into, which I feel we're going to end up at a lot of gallery-sponsored mm-hmm. cocktail parties there uh, spring through the fall of this year, no Exactly. Doubt. I mean, a New York City with the Hotel Chelsea is, is just a better New York. It's a better place. You know? El Cajote is back up mm-hmm. in operation. Uh, new new kitchen team there, but they've kept the decor as far as I could tell. I mean, my memory is the last time I was here and every sub- every every previous time, pretty fucking hazy. I know. But I lo- it looks almost exactly the same. It does. And like just walking into the lobby, I got some, some, some little... little Goosebumpies, you know, because it just—it's magical. Do you have any history? Have you ever been up in the rooms before, Nate? I—I I have actually. Um, I went to this really formative event for me. Uh, it was just a few weeks after I moved to New York City. Um, I came with friend of the pod, Michael Woodsmall. Shout oh, out Woodsmall. I didn't know Woodsmall was involved. Now it all makes more sense. Um, and and we were coming to a party hosted by uh, our fellow Duke alum. Dana Vachon, the Dana, novelist. Dana, old friend of mine. I've always mm-hmm. liked him a lot. Didn't realize he went to Duke, so I'm going to have to put that in, but uh, <laughs> a fantastic writer. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And Dana was hosting a little cocktail party at the uh, room uh, of the penis Bruce Livingston, who was, he was staying in at the time. And um, I, I don't know what the the, uh, the occasion was necessarily. It was just a cocktail party, but Bruce, uh, who's an incredible pianist, uh, had a Steinway 
grand piano in the room. So cool. And at one point um, in the evening, I think it was quite late, some woman was just like, is it okay if I play the piano? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And she just knocked out this amazing Beethoven you know, sonata on the piano and everyone was just stunned. It was a really, like, really no one really knew who she was. No, didn't know no, that no, she was, no, no. I mean, she was probably like a, a concert pianist. Yeah. Like being, that's what happens in the Chelsea hotel. Exactly. Hotel Chelsea and happens in New York city. Mm-hmm. And it was in this room. Actually, uh, it was half of the room where Sid vicious killed Nancy Spungen, which is the most notorious thing that's happened here. Even more notorious than, than, uh, Leonard Cohen and Janis Joplin <laughs> because it was an actual murder. <laughs> um, and that room has since been split into two, but you could, still kind of feel this sort of gritty old New York energy uh, nay, in there. Nay. Those were the reason, and that was New York. Let's go, baby! Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Let's not uh, uh, let's not forget about another really uh, crazy cool thing that happened to Chelsea, uh, the show that Gavin Brown gave Elizabeth Payton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kurt Her- his first, I believe, kind of curatorial slash gallerist mm-hmm. endeavor, and her certainly first public presentation. We tried it? to get Gavin on the pod to talk about this himself. He was uh, somehow preoccupied gavin you're always in rome man he's in rome the gladstone galleries really salted our (laughs) game on this episode a little bit but uh (laughs) but you know how she is Mm -hmm. yes yes (laughs) but what gavin did this is now legendary is he rented a room in the chelsea installed a bunch of works by elizabeth on the walls and uh basically through word of mouth i don't think there was any press even just said that if you went to the lobby and asked for a key you could get the key and see the show by yourself. You could do whatever you want in the room. You could stay as long as you wanted to, do whatever you want, and just hang out with the, with the works, which is really, really awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, so cool. Uh, I know Jerry Salt saw it, and he wrote uh, an essay about it. I, I can't remember who else saw it. It was probably just like a few hundred people, if that. You know, it was, it was, it was you know, obviously pre-internet and with no press whatsoever. It was just word Yeah, out. I mean, this would have sucked in this today's day and age. <laughs> yeah, fucking been on, fucking like, some, someone's Instagram people... story within a minute. Oh, oh. Jesus. Yeah, you couldn't God, pull that off now. Fucking everything sucks now, Nate. Yeah, or you have to make people sign fucking NDAs. Or it's just like, oh, it's so lame. But yeah, before everything started to suck, that Kinda was like awesome. like the NDA we, we signed saying we wouldn't post pictures of this room we're in? Yes, yes. Just like that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, it's, just the, the Chelsea Hotel, the musicians and the writers we listed, uh, like the dark times. I mean, and it went through so many cycles because it was, you know, when it was originally built, it was the tallest hotel in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's true, uh, and it's amazing iron construction. So we we toured around downstairs, event space, uh, the bar, which is going to be a killer scene. Cahoti mm-hmm. uh, open, but then they took us up to show us some rooms, including the room we are recording right now. And fucking a man, I'm ready to move in. I know. It sounds like SpawnCon or something. We just really like this place. And um, I'm sure that our European friends, when they're coming into town... They paid us nothing. You know, I did take they, a... Yeah, they paid a, us nothing. It's probably a $7 coconut water from the mini bar. <laughs> Nate's got a couple of those like IPAs or something over there. I'm, I'm sipping on an IPA. That's, that, sipping, that's correct. But, okay. but no, we're not being paid to do this. We just like this place. I mean, um, it's anyone, anyone, anyone with any aesthetic sense or really any soul that mm-hmm. would walk in here would like to do it. The details that Sean does in the decor, down to the, the font that they've used for the, uh, the, the name of the hotel and the color of that font, and how the color of those words on the stationery in the room interact with the color on the walls. Yeah. It's going to be a great place. I hope that that we'll be back here for some events. Yeah, as soon as, as May when everything is just really ripping. I, mean, I would like it to be SpawnCon. I will do every single fucking episode <laughs> from here. Sign me the fuck up. Just show me where the dotted line is and I will sign. I'm, I'm like, sure that can be I'm like fucking Ariel and the Little Mermaid. I'm signing away my voice. Just show me where, baby. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what happened to the Little Mermaid. 
Uh, who do you think's seen The Little Mermaid more often than you <laughs> okay, have for, in the past few years? Okay, fair. <laughs> the, fair enough. The, the, the already dad. You'll get there. Don't I'll, you I'll, worry. I'll, I'm going to rewatch all those fucking Disney movies. Yeah. Um, mm. All right. Well, I think we, we have a great guest uh, coming on. But before we get to the guest. Who's the guest? Uh, the guest is, is Zach Kitnick. Uh, Zach fucking Kitnick. Incredible artist. Great friend. Uh, an amazing New York person who has a show opening tonight at Clearing Gallery in Bushwick. Really one of the highlights of the spring season, the show. Got to see it. But it won't be tonight when you listen to this. Don't get it twisted. I'm right. Not, Thursday, I'm whatever. Um, but um, there is some stuff we have to talk about. There's an Andy Warhol painting coming to Christie's that is going to sell for a lot of money. The same Andy Warhol that shot the majority of his film Chelsea Girls here in this hotel? Wow, look at that. Look at that. Wow, I'm getting to be a pro at this shit. <laughs> um, an incredible Andy Warhol, turquoise, Marilyn. Um, it's, 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 it's the, the uh, soft blue. Get, soft blue, soft blue. Uh, the turquoise is owned by friend of the pod, Steve Cohen. <laughs> what up, Mets? Let's go, Mets. <laughs> Let's go, Mets. Um, it's an incredible picture, low estimate. 200 million, no guarantee, sold by the heirs uh, or the estate of Doris Amon from mm-hmm. uh, Amon Galleries. Um, pretty incredible picture. Um, the kind of thing that they don't come up that often. Um, there's a great a great analysis, actually, you sent to me a few years ago of how these have traded over the past few years, written mm-hmm. by... Um, by Marion Maneker, yeah. um, when he was doing Art Market Monitor. And you can really just kind of... And, and in that article, and this was written 10, uh, several years ago, whatever. It was written four years ago. Four years ago? Well, it feels like 10. I put a lot of miles on this body. Anyway, you can kind of see the evolution of the art market at large, or the contemporary market at large, uh, over the years of what the price points that pictures from the series have traded yeah, just, at. Just for people who aren't fully obsessed there were five uh marilyn Monroe paintings that that warhol made in 1964 they're called the shot marilyn's because uh as performance artists came into the factory and shot them with a pistol <laughs> and then they were they Keep were it classy everyone <laughs> they were they were fixed um but they're still called the shot marilyn's um and yeah, one is uh owned by steve cohen uh one is owned by ken griffin who bought it four years ago for a price that is reported to be between 200 and 250 mil, I believe. Um, and then the other two that are not at auction are owned by Peter Brandt, who bought it, shit you not, for $5,000 in 5, the 60s. 5,000 bones. Right, from Warhol, I believe. Um, and then the fourth one is... I'm blanking out, buddy. Didn't do any show prep. And, oh, Philip Niarcos. Philip Niarcos owns it. So, yeah. I mean, that's like... Those are all amazing homes in right. terms of like... And if you think about it, none of those guys need to sell this shit. They're billionaires. Like, why would a New Yorker sell a Warhol? They don't need to. So this is the last chance you'll have to get one of these yeah, shot and The Warhol market at large has been quite soft recently. Mm. But that's one of those things where you can't really... You can only understand market the art market so much by the pure data. You have to know what's what, and these are incredibly specific pictures. And just because, like you know, everyday Warhols, you know your your Mao, your gun, your mm-hmm. knife painting, just because they're not trading up multiples of their estimates or even having trouble to sell in the sales room, something like this. There's what would we figure out? Probably ten to twelve multi multi billionaires who are all going to want a piece of this, most likely. That might be a little high, but there's definitely you know. A good handful of of multi mega billionaires who are willing to spend anything. We got a few people in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Got a few people in Asia. Yeah, still a couple of Americans. Yeah, I think so. Maybe a couple of uh, Europeans, especially one that owns an auction house. Yeah, <laughs> the auction house where it's being sold. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure all those guys would love to have this. I mean, Alex Rotter, 
uh, of Christie's, you know, he tends to be a little bombastic when he announces this stuff, but he compared it to the Mona Lisa. And you know what? Like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Alex like, Booby. But like in terms of American post-war painting, like this is an icon of the century painted by the art icon of the century. I get it. Listen, like, talk about bombast. Auction house people often talk about something called wall power. Mm -hmm. Wall power is an ineffable thing that you can't quantify in terms of dollars and cents or in terms of art history. Mm. But the feeling when you see a picture on the wall and how it impacts you and how it just screams, I'm a fucking baller. Yeah. This picture has all of that writ large. And of course, it is one of the most American pictures uh, by the most important artist of the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say. Um, I think we're going to have our good friend... uh, Sarah Friedlander from Christie's on the pod closer to the auction. So we'll get we can- the company line from here. And I think we mm-hmm. should also have former Christie's private sales director and friend of the pod, Locke Kressler, on. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this uh, and the real dirt in the market. Exactly. And, and the auctions more so broadly. So there's a lot of auction uh, uh, takes to come, but this is by far the biggest lot to be announced. It's big news. And it's mm-hmm. so ballsy and so smart to sell it without a guarantee. I wonder if they will accept, like, if I were to call them up tomorrow and be like, hey, I have 250 guaranteed. Uh, 50-50 on the up. In fact, two fifty guarantee. Mm-hmm. Holiday to three hundred means I'll take no money if it hits anywhere right. between two fifty and three hundred. I'll guarantee you at two fifty if someone bids up three hundred, nothing. Holiday mm-hmm. to three hundred, fifty fifty on the upside above three hundred million dollars. I wonder if the if the consigners would take that deal. I mean, I don't know because the way that Rodder was talking, he was like, "This is going to be the most expensive painting of all time," which means that it's going to be the four fifty uh, that the the fake Leonardo got. Do you think any DAOs are going to get in on this? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. Because I wonder if I can get a DAO together to put that guarantee offer I just spoke out loud. Rodder, give me a call, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how it gets done. Not really. No, I don't think you're you're dealing in those those digits, dude. Uh, not so much. Not yeah. so much. I'm, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good in the seven, eight figure, figure zone. I'm real happy. Love it. Real Love happy it. to play there. Love it. Love it. Um, all right, my friend. What else is going on in the world news? I know that you have a new column just dropping mm-hmm. with some explosive new revelations out of one of the biggest divorce cases in the art world in quite some time. Yeah, so uh, what happens, a lawsuit was filed um, by an LLC uh, that was connected to a uh, art dealer by the name of Ellie Sakai, uh, you know, who was uh, guilty to forging works back in the 90s and has sort of been on the low since then. Um, he accused David Mugrabi and the Mugrabi family of having a work that he consigned to Phillips pulled from the sale because they... they uh, erroneously, or or just just you know, they lied and and said that it was a stolen work. Um, he had bought this work from Livy Mugrabi, who just divorced from David after a long, very contentious divorce. And he bought it post divorce, or post-divorce. while they were in the midst of the divorce. Well, I guess they weren't fully technically divorced yet. He bought it in September. So I think that may. I think it, I think that may be where the uh, where mm-hmm. legally there's uh, where the play is. Right, and the work which is not named in the lawsuit, but. Dude's just some sleuthing. I figured it out. It's a Keith Haring sculpture that, uh, according to um, testimony in court and reporting by the New York Post, among other outlets, uh, was literally wrestled over by Libby and David Mugrabi during a scuffle in their apartment on the Upper East Side. Uh, and then Libby later brought it in to court as evidence of their little tiff. Um, so it was presumably in her possession because she brought it into court. Um so they knew it was in her possession. Yeah. Um, they knew it was in her possession. I guess they, they didn't realize it was sold by her until it turned up at Phillips. 
uh, and then they saw it in the catalog, mm-hmm. and they had their legal representatives write a this letter. This is all allegedly, allegedly, by the way. Allegedly, this is what the lawsuit says. I, you know, I, I put all the allegedly is in the story. Yeah, yeah. So, let's just, so just, uh, just, you know, <laughs> for, for the, this entire segment, it's allegedly <laughs> yeah. there. Um, uh, but uh, the, but the interesting thing was me. is that it was not recorded in the art loss register, which is a database where you're mm-hmm. supposed to record stolen artwork, and then auction houses always check. Uh, they check each and every artwork that they sell to make sure it's not in that database. So that right. So it wasn't in that database. So they're like, okay, legit. It was estimated at uh, two hundred to three hundred thousand um, dollars, and it was, you know, in the the PDFs of uh, the catalog that were printed um, somewhat earlier, and then at a certain point before the sale, it was pulled. And even though if it wasn't, you know, and I know that they don't keep their pulled lots up on the website, but even so, a pulled lot, it decreases its value. Oh, yeah. Uh, by a, a not insignificant amount. And that was noted in the suit as well, um, that, that, you know, they're asking for the damages done by, you know, devaluing And allegedly, the one would think, uh, presumably, uh, if I can qualify it any further, let me know how, um, the fact that the Mugrabis are big clients of all the auction houses. Yes, especially probably, Phillips, right? Uh, from what I understand, yeah. I mean, yeah. they go through ups and downs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they like to play the, all of them off each other, I think, yeah. um, as any smart business person would do. Um, but anyway, they use that relationship, one would, would guess, uh, to to kind of put the weight on to have this pulled. Totally. Um, you know, I, I reported basically just what the lawsuit says. Um, so, uh, you know, this lawsuit had been filed almost a month ago. And, I mean, uh, it's weird for something. I mean, the, the sculpture is worth, let's say, 200 grand. I think I'm mm-hmm. being a little generous. Um, like, the lawyer fees are going to eat up the value of the sculpture pretty right. fucking quick. Mm-hmm. It seems like a silly thing not to work out with a handshake uh, between I know, but uh, it, a couple you know, of great Shafar families. The lawsuit was filed in the, the Supreme Court of the state of New York, and, you know, it will be worked out. The only... Um, party involved that that issued a statement to me was phillips and they said we look forward to this being resolved yeah i guess the sculpture is currently in the phillips warehouse yeah uh that's what the lawsuit alleges yeah i hope they don't lose it (laughs) (laughs) what does that mean i don't know i mean (laughs) um auction houses deal with a lot of objects and it's a lot of inventory control um Mm. what else has been going on in new york i've seen you you've been out and about on the town i I see name cards i see dinners you said yeah last night yeah went to Picaro last night um platform which is the uh online sales uh component that's backed by david's Werner gallery had a nice little shindig is that still going on i was actually thinking about this is the thing where they have like third-party galleries that can use Mm them i think it's really helpful for a lot of galleries you know um they obviously don't like put all their stuff on platform but like if there's some artwork that they think can find a home through platform it's really helpful i mean isn't that basically what artsy always has been though yeah i think this is a little bit more bespoke it's very small it's a small team you know, okay. I met some of the people who work there. They're really smart. Really I'm like, cool. I'm not trying to salt it. I'm generally yeah, curious yeah, about yeah. what its position is and why it mm-hmm. exists. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a nice little dinner. Just some of the artists who have work that's being sold uh, were there. Um, and, you know, always great to go to, to Baccaro, one of, the, one of the great places. Old school, man. Mm-hmm. Old school. Um, is that hotel open up yet down there? I actually mentioned this in the column as well. Uh, but the hotel is called Nine Orchard, and it is slated to open this summer. And I am very worried about what it's going to do. It's going to destroy the hood, bro. Well, okay. So some caveats. One, all the food is being done by Ignacio Matos, good oh, friend, good of, the friend pod, of the pod. You know, like I love fucking with some Ultra, some Lodi, you know, obviously Estella. So look, there's going to be good food there. The problem is with any luxury hotel, it means that you have, you know, 150 to 200 people who are staying at the hotel who are just going to be, you know, 
going to Times Square. Listen, I just like, I just like, remember probably about twenty years ago now, uh, Lower East Side, um, a little bit north of there, when Ludlow Street was a place to be, mm-hmm. and the hotel on Rivington opened. I think that was the original yep. night, name of it. Uh, this glass edifice uh, also had a great food program. Kurt uh, or whatever from Valze. That's a good uh, point. Runs, yeah, runs the restaurant, mm-hmm. and you could definitely clock the decline of that neighborhood. Yeah, to the opening of that hotel. Now things eventually, uh, very quickly, in fact, I think concurrently had already moved uh, down south of there, and we had an amazing bar. Good World, like one of the yep. classic Good, great New York Good Hons. World you is had, at the bottom of that hotel. You, you had Aaron Young's studio like above there. Mm-hmm. Everyone was hanging out there. Great DJs. Um, really fun back patio scene. It was somewhat like what Clandestino is now, mm-hmm. um, I would argue. Not even argue. I'd just say. It's fucking true. Yeah. Um, th- this hotel bought that building and and proceeded to demolish or, or alter that space. This has got to be 10 plus years ago now. They've been trying to construct this fucking thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that it initially sold in 2005. Um, at, at which point the owners were intending to turn into a hotel. They sold it again in 2010. So it's been 12 years uh, straight that they've been working on this. Um, and it's been delayed countless times. I think, you know, the, the, the Kobe probably made it another year or two. But now it's actually opening. It really is. And like we it's have It's not going to be as nice that. as the hotel we're in. I can guarantee Definitely you not. that, Poppy. Definitely not. Um, and it's just going to be a bummer down there. But, you know, you know what's next? Two bridges, baby. It's coming strong. Just got to go south. Got to go east. Keep going south. Mm-hmm. I mean, manifest yeah. destiny, baby. Manifest destiny exactly. in Manhattan. Look, I mean, Clandestino is already so jam packed. Like, I just can't imagine. You another... told me the other day at lunch, we had. Oh, we gotta we gotta hit our lunch in a second. But yeah. you mentioned that there's now like a, a door person, not with a list or anything, but enforcing kind of uh, keeping just it from fire being too code. Packed. You know, you can't have that many people. It's a real time. bummer to hear. I think that when the temperatures, I think get... I gave up the bar life just in time. <laughs> when the temperatures get warmer and you have people outside in both the front patio and the back patio, I think it'll be fine. Um, but on a cold night night you know there's not enough room in there you know um we had a i thought it was an incredible lunch on saturday at cosme mm-hmm. uh, cosme fucking incredible. crushed it i didn't been there in years that was a classic lunch and very well priced i have to say considering that we ordered we ran the fucking menu obviously mm-hmm. i got a little bit of everything we got the fucking ceviches yep. we got the, the you know the, the the cured fishes we got the shrimp dish we got the empanadas we got what else did we get we got everything it was really good it was all fucking great. Those fresh tortillas they make. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And the crowd. We had a friend fr- friend of the pod from London, Carl Costiel. Just London, one, Sweden, one of the Milan. Where the fuck is Carl from? Galleries in Sweden. He's Hungarian. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Um, one, and- of, one of my favorite moments was... Um, me and you and, and a few other people at the table were checking our phones because it was you know March Madness and there were basketball games being played. Um, and, uh, and as we're looking at our phones, Carl says... Oh, is it is it college basketball season in, in America? And we're like, yeah, man. He's like, oh, it's war season in Europe. <laughs> I mean, terrible to laugh about, but I mean, the man is a raconteur and has timing like like nobody else. We will have to get him on the pod soon. And mm-hmm. of course, another a few other fabulous gentlemen joined us. It was a really, it was actually the most fun I've had in a while. I was it was it was a very nice lunch off the entire day. Very very um, nice lunch. And with that, anything else? We missing any big stories? I, I think we should get on to our guest. Zach Kitnick is is here at the Hotel Chelsea. We're going to kick it with Zach, talk about his show that's opening tonight, and uh, just go through his career. It's going to be really fun. Awesome. Stay tuned for that right now. After this. Here we are, live from the Chelsea Hotel. What a treat it is the to Hotel say that. The Hotel Chelsea. The Hotel Chelsea. I remember it well. Do you? 
Well, that's the song, man. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're joined here by Mr. Zach Kitnick. What's going on, Zach, buddy? Zach, it's so Hello. good it's to a- have you on Notre Dame. What a, what a treat. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. And on the eve of your big opening out in Brooklyn and Clearing Gallery. Uh, Tonight's the night. It is. The pictures I've seen look spectacular. It looks really amazing. We'll get into all of that. I can't wait to talk about the show. Um, but right now, you know, let's just, just take in this. Uh, what do you think of, of the, the Hotel Chelsea? You like the new well, Chelsea? You know, I don't have a, a long and storied personal history mm-hmm. uh, with the hotel, but, you know, it's looking better than ever. Better than ever. Say. Better than ever. Yeah. But I bet you've been to El Cajote oh. down in the, in the oh, ground floor. A, a dozen a times. In fact, uh, I think the most epic uh, evening of 2015 was when uh, my old pal Matt Moravec moved his off-Vendome gallery from Dusseldorf to New York, mm-hmm. right down the street on 23rd mm-hmm. Street, and had... Uh, a real steak and lobster blowout. Oh, that sounds and, great. Uh, I know Morvek, he's, he's an Epicurean. How did he afford that? Jesus Christ. It was Christ, the man. beginning of the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, <you> know. <laughs> he's an Epicurean man. He's Morvek. A good, a good mm-hmm. guy. I went to a, a number of gallery dinners. I definitely went to either a Kreps or Kern or maybe combined Kreps Kern dinner here many, many mm-hmm. years ago. Lobster may or may not have been on the menu. It's a little blurry for me. Not gonna mm-hmm. lie. Oh, I love it. I loved it though. You know, it's it was also a go-to when you're craving like mediocre steak, mm-hmm. cocktail. You know, call it. We, call it an evening. I think that they've revamped the the menu, and I think that it's an, it's new ownership. So it, oh, I'm sure it's going to be insane. They've yuppified sure really yuppif- yeah. the food, but like they kept the decor just so mm-hmm. and with all due respect that they did as such i mean bravo bravo it, it's looking great down there i'm excited to get a cocktail uh in a bit <laughs> you excited to get a cocktail date i can't imagine well it's for it's for research you know? i hear they do a hell of bitters and soda <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i mean look drinking anything in that bar would be spectacular 100 percent looking great 100 percent agree mm-hmm. so so zach w- w- let's just let's take it back you know you have a huge opening tonight at clearing you know the work looks spectacular no pressure or anything huge yeah. <laughs> but but just take us back i mean when did you first come to new york what when did you just embark on this mission that has ended up in you know where you are today you know that's that's a good question because i i always sort of like to take you know whatever is the simplest way to do something just that that seems like a good way so I remember when I went to Bard for undergrad in upstate New York. Shut up, Bard College. And at that oh, point in my life, you know, I, I, I could, I could uh, fit every single thing I owned in the back of, you know, my my car. Drove an hour and a half south, and uh, ended up here. You know, mm-hmm. Although, what, what kind of car were you driving? Let me. Think I see you in a that. sob. I don't know why you, I say that. You know what it was? Uh, it was uh, the car that I. St- <laughs> Still have now. Uh, it's a Toyota Tacoma. But so this is actually funny that you say this because, you know, I used to have, uh, my brother and I actually used to have these matching hemp shorts and they had a tag on it and it said, cotton wears out, hemp wears in. And I always liked that expression, but that's also how I think about pickup trucks. So if you think of a 2005 Toyota Corolla, that car's not sexy right now. No. But a 2005 Toyota Tacoma, it just gets better every day. You know? It does. I'm getting I, damp just thinking about it. Yeah, no, it's all beat up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, it's really... Uh, I can smell the inside I mean, of that the, cab, the, actually. The lights are frosted. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it's dented to the nine. It's, it's a looking, great car. I, I spent some time with that car uh, during the, the height of, of lockdown, really, when we were both up in the Catskills on the opposite sides of the river. Fun times, right? It's, it's no nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I just want I want to uh, applaud you for having the courage to admit to having hemp shorts. <laughs> I mean, this was uh, no. That shows like a true a true strength of character that you're willing to own it. 
this was a uh, Santa Barbara in 1990. So if you didn't have Hemshores, you weren't shit. Yeah, yeah no, I get mm-hmm. it. I, I was wasn't there, but I was there, man. Um, so what kind of music were you listening to in Bard? Yeah, what were you oh. blasting? It's 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 pathetic. Uh, but my musical taste has not changed since I was 13. Uh, so it's actually uh, kind of funny because. I find music to be very, very powerful. So I don't understand people that wake up in the morning, put on a song. You know, it's just... So when I'm feeling a little bit too up, you know, I'll put on, you know, some some Neil Young Harvest. When I'm feeling a little bit mm-hmm. too down, I got to, you know, medicate with a little bit of, you know, industrial strength, Taylor Swift pop music. Wow. But, I was going to say. But, you know, and, and when you're in between, you know, maybe, maybe you can put on like a Pavement album. But mm-hmm. I don't like to think about these things. So what I do is when it's time to, you know, put the pedal to the metal. I go to the studio, I put on 101.1 CBS FM, which mm-hmm. is like what house painters listen to when they're painting houses. It's just like, it's work, it's work music. It's you know? work it's, music. So shout out CBS FM 101.1. Mm-hmm. I was out at, at Bakker last night and ran into an old friend who was with the artist Alex DeCorta, who introduced me to Alex. We had met before, but, but she said, Nate is the only person I know who likes Taylor Swift as much as I do. And Alex really got a kick out of that. I, I well, like you. I, I that, am. I am that's an avowed Swifty. An avowed Swifty. Maybe yeah. that's why you guys are so friends. So you come to New York in. I missed the year already. Uh, let's see. That was uh, 2007. 2007. You're a young buck. You know, uh, I'm 37. It's. What you What'd you do to make money when you moved to New York? Well, you sell your body on the street. I did something that in retrospect, was sort of the perfect analogy. Because what I did is I built sheetrock walls. And at the end of the day, after carrying these like 100-pound pieces of sheetrock and then, you know, putting them up and sanding it, uh, the sheetrock powder would sort of give you like a dusting over your hair and face and it would make your hair look gray and it would like accentuate like the wrinkles on your face and you felt like 100 and you looked like you were 100. And uh, I I didn't do that forever. And I that's like real work. You had a real job. It was not a joke. It was not a joke. And then you know, I I met a couple artists and and helped out in the studio. No, were you making? Were you doing like residential projects? Were you just like a contractor? Like, were you doing it for like galleries? Like, I I was doing it for like it was all word of mouth, like uh, mostly artist studios and stuff like that. But uh, you know, it wasn't. uh, It's not sexy. I mean, it's kind of sexy, but it's not sexy. It was. I think it's very sexy. You know, it's like Philip Glass was a plumber. You know, like like. You know, it's like, probably a better plumber than I was. A <laughs> sheet rocker. I mean, but, he did it for a while. I didn't you know. know that. This is my my neighbor Phil, by the way. You know, close friend. Oh, I yeah, saw him right, the other day, right down the block. Yeah, right down the block. You know, um, he's just chilling. So then, did you end up working as an artist like assistant for a while, or what was your? Yeah, so uh, it was it was a incredible. Experience were, you, were we living in Brooklyn somewhere? I was. I was living out. Uh, I remember when I first looked at it, I saw like a map, and I saw like JFK, and I saw Union Square. And I was definitely like closer to JFK. So, Ouch! Yeah, was not amazing, but you know, there's room for improvement. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're moving in the right direction. Have you so. moved over the bridge yet, or are you still in Brooklyn? Oh no, you, uh, beautiful place in Brooklyn. I, I've been. It's an incredible apartment, and it's full of some some pretty amazing art. You know, yeah, I mean, that their is, collection is, is that is, is the quite stunning. And perk of having good friends. And it's 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 installed as like a salon style hang. It's 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 pretty remarkable. Well, if too. I ever go to Brooklyn, I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> I have a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, so you're in New York. What were your first you know shows? Who were you showing with at first? How did the momentum well, get going? 
you know, sort of funny. The woman who wrote the press release for this uh, show came by the studio the other day. We ended up having like a four-hour Riley. Call. Yeah, Riley. Yeah, Riley Davidson. Out Riley Davidson. Yeah. Uh, and wrote a beautiful I, it, press I, I read it. It was very good. Perfect. Mm-hmm. But so it was funny because she was there four hours. And I was like, there's no way we can, uh, you know, this is a 20-minute conversation. Paragraph, you know. Uh, but we ended up going all the way back to, you know, the day I remember I left undergrad, I thought to myself, you know, I want to enter the world with nothing, not even an idea. So right before it was over, I made everything I'd ever thought of making. I drove down to the city and I had nothing, not even an idea. So, you know, I was walking around and uh, then I got a call um, from a curator named Kate McNamara, who uh, invited me to do a show at PS1. Mm-hmm. Uh and it was perfect timing because I walked into this hardware store and I saw this flooring tile. And I looked at this flooring tile and I'm like, oh my God, I love this flooring tile. It looks familiar. Like, this is incredible. And I realized, oh, it's just literally like a Mondrian painting that somebody had turned into, you know, browns and beiges uh, and put on the floor. And so I was thinking, you know, since this day, my work has only dealt with cycles, you know, from the wall to the floor, from vertical to horizontal, from you know, modern production to contemporary, you know, schlock from, uh, you know, a unique object to mass produced objects. And so uh, what I ended up doing is I took this thing and I sort of remade it out of bronze and brass and copper and I put it back on the wall at PS1 and that was uh, my first show. And then I quit uh, all my day jobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But I mean, Too, I mean, way, way premature. I feel like you. I feel like you must have skipped a couple, a couple of steps there, because to go from like a hanging drywall to Kate McNamara. Shout out Kate McNamara. Shout I live up Kate. in Boston now. Beautiful. Uh, offering you, a, offering you a show. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, you just a master networker. Like what went down? Oh, not at all. It's like I hate that word. Even. Well, yeah. So, so, so <laughs> well, yeah. Now, so come out. The record's great. Yeah. yeah. Keep, keep, keep. My, I was keeping my head down. I was, you know. Uh, uh, oh, Kate had uh, gone to CCS uh, at Bard, and so we had crossed paths there, and that was um, that was how mm-hmm. we become aware. Amazing! It's just, just that easy. Amazing. And uh, you were, I think, one of the first artists in the Clearing Stable. I mean, is that is that right? Among the first? Yeah, you know, I did a show, um, a group show at Clearing that opened on the same day, or sorry, the day before um, my solo show at Clifton Benevento. Mm-hmm. So that was um, around 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all ancient history, but that that it's, you know, but it's fascinating. Uh, but then shout so out to the Michaels. Wow. Yeah, I know they were incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible eye, incredible gallery, totally great space. Um, yeah. So they also kind of gave me carte blanche, and so I said, okay, like let me uh, make these two-ton steel sculptures. Let me inlay them into the walls, and let me. Um, buy a couple hundred like fruit and vegetable posters that uh, I'd been collecting over the years and frame them all and hang them in these huge grids covering the wall. And Highly commercial shit right there. Yeah, the shows. Hey, <laughs> I have one of well, those in, 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 in my kitchen upstate. Exactly. And it's, it looks amazing. <laughs> those sculptures uh, were, uh, what did, did the trick. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I guess, you know, when you go uh, to like a Mexican restaurant and you see that chili pepper poster in the bathroom and you go to a bakery and you see that sort of bread poster um well so I, theoretically you could have bought them for like 1995 but at the time the show opened uh the company that produced these posters had actually gone out of business so i had purchased every single one of them that was available uh 
that was new and used uh, in the U.S. and Europe. So uh, <laughs> I, you, you actually couldn't buy it, but they still looked, you know, like you didn't want to. So you were kind of a market maker at that point <laughs> for that particular type of poster. I still have them. What was your, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds because like talking about art is, you know, dancing about architecture sometimes. But like what was interesting to you about these posters? And I, I, if people, you know, the kind of ver very generic sort of, you know, like basically the, you know, the g generic form of things you can buy that any restaurant will then have to yeah. kind of promote. I mean, they, like, they were uh, these sort of compendiums, you know, they were what was interesting to me about them was this idea of presenting information as decoration. And so I had been collecting these for years and years, and at a certain point I realized I had not learned anything. You know, I had never read a word of it. I had sort of uh, consumed it whole as like a single image. So I had been thinking a lot about, you know, um, organization, about information. And so what I wanted to do is take these things, like I said, you know, Individually, they have a sort of like aboutness. You know, this one's about apples. This one's about tropical fruits. But they were all sort of follow followed a format. So they were all um, how do I say? They they when you put them in a larger grid, it was sort of short circuiting, and it would become about you know come about the structure of it was the so object. totalizing that it 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 right. it, it, uh, it worked against any ability to actually right. read the images. but it's sort of funny because you know people always say oh the pro like a, a spectacle is a process that starts and stops with seeing that doesn't lead to like thinking that doesn't lead to engagement it's just like you know they sort of wash over you and it, these posters were funny because they were you know a fucking piece of paper but there was like a very small by definition like spectacle because these things um you know, you, you saw them, but they were impenetrable. There's no idea that you, it's a, like a There's page. no entry point. You, yeah, you don't, exactly. There's no point of entry. There's no exit. You know, you don't read it top to bottom, left to right. You just sort of see the thing in it. Uh, I just loved, uh, like, individually how they function, but also... Because they're actually shorthand. They're actually not images. They're shorthand mm -hmm. of an right. idea. And, and so I also loved, when you looked at these posters, this was this, was this um, you know commercial photography so you know i like we said i grew up uh in california in the 80s and at this time i remember there was two kinds of lettuce you know we had romaine if you had a caesar salad and iceberg if you didn't mm -hmm. uh but at a certain point um you know in order to create desire you have to create awareness so in a weird way even if you weren't like looking and reading these posters you could see this thing that oh there are 20 30 different types of lettuces uh and so over time, you know, people got to be like, you know, I feel like Nate's a little bit of a radicchio guy or something, you know. And love, I fuck with radicchio, actually. <laughs> I, actually I, I was going to say, I love radicchio. I think radicchio. But I He's fuck totally with radicchio. radicchio. No, uh, I, I mean, I was just, just in the grocery aisle today and like trying to get some lettuce and it's impossible to get just romaine anymore, you know. Yeah, no, everything's a super mm -hmm. mini a super green. green. Or, yeah. Also, mm -hmm. romaine's kind of like mids, you know. And I'm either into like, give me some basic ass fucking iceberg lettuce, mm -hmm. or I want some microgreens, or some shit I've never even heard of, mm -hmm. some yeah, spicy yeah. ass rocket. I bought the romaine today. I <laughs> romaine's was it. I had mids, it on a sandwich. Bro. I well, fucking loved it. Probably going to grill it, though. Just <laughs> I mean, you know, you can grill it. You can, yeah. I mean, you know, you can do all sorts of things. With like with a romaine. vegan buttermilk using like yeast? Sure. Yeast? Yeah. I mean, no, I, I fuck with yeast, you know? Like, like that's, that's, <laughs> that's what a, I hear, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Um, <laughs> What anyway. you're a baker. <laughs> anyway. So but, you're Clifton Benevento. I saw that show. I remember that show. Um when did you first start showing outside of the New York area? When's your first like non New York? I'm presuming you've it, had one. 
Oh yeah. Well, it, like Many. I said, um, I got I got lucky, um, and so I I remember from that uh, PS One show I started working with a gallery in Sweden and in Geneva, and um, actually I remember I had gone over uh, for a show uh, in Malmo, and the volcano in Iceland erupted. Uh, oh, damn. And yeah. I had actually gone uh, over, uh, at that point, I had taken like a 20-minute flight to Oslo after the show, saw some friends in uh, in Norway. And then I was trying to get back, and I ended up taking like a 12-and-a-half-hour bus ride back uh, to get to Malmo. And then from there, you know, this was like the Queen Mary 2 was booked two years in advance overnight. Like people thought this was like the end of air travel, as we know, because essentially what happened is this volcano would um, discard this ash, which would turn to glass in the airplane, airplane turbine engines. Uh, and so what would happen is like there would be this moment where the wind was blowing the right direction and people would say like, okay, like go to the airport, like a flight's leaving and I would go. And so I actually took that um, train from Malmo to Copenhagen about 20 times over the course of two weeks. <laughs> uh, or, well, no, not 20, 15 times, uh, but once a day, every day. And then I come back. And um, it was it was, it it's was kind fun. Of, it's kind of crazy. I mean, That's I remember when, I remember when that happened. And air air travel almost globally shut down. Basically, any any European hub, and it kind of filtered totally beyond for, that. I totally but it was kind of like one of, an early not an early, but a totalizing global event, almost like coronavirus was. And that totally. things seemed on the precipice of like a real change and like a a shutdown and an inability. You know, to where the fuck was I? I don't remember this at all. Uh, I. I don't know, but I, I actually you saw, were Sophie's I saw in the news. <laughs> <laughs> I saw in the news the other day that the airline industry is like kind of trying to pressure um, uh, them to like remove the mask mandate on planes. And I was just thinking, like, I mean, I remember the first time I ever flew, I got like mono from like the air, so I'm kind of like into the mask on the plane. Totally. Planes are fucking disgusting. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep up that. That's gonna be I think that's gonna be a, a game changer for me. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna be a mask on plane guy mm-hmm. indefinitely. Yeah, I mean, I don't want the mask you know, on planes. It's been that way in Asia for so long. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, unless you're flying private, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> masks aren't allowed on private. <laughs> Not that you would know, Nate. <laughs> Touche. Um, we missed you, buddy. Know, um, anyway, where were so, we? So, so I want to know about just sort of like the embryonic years of clearing gallery because it's it's one of my favorite uh, galleries in the city. Obviously, they have a gallery in. Um, in Brussels as well, as well as uh, one in Los Angeles. But Olivier was an artist, and then he turned his studio into a gallery, right? Yeah, so L- actually... Olivier Babin, the founder of Clarion. It's funny, he sent me a link uh, the other day to a... I think it was a Sotheby's sale. Uh, oh, he told me about that. This, he, yeah. he had uh, an early uh, early work in, but he mm-hmm. definitely is very hands-on and approaches uh, things as a former artist. Uh, but no, the thing that I, I like about clearing is that I show with all my friends mm-hmm. uh, and you know no shade but you know sometimes like a gallery can feel sort of monosyllabic like they all the artists use the same palette or all the artists like the same theorist or whatever at clearing I feel like everybody does what they do and they do it very well and it's all different Mm-hmm. And it's all friends. So yeah, that's sort of uh, that's a great way. What's well, interesting it. that they're friends because I feel like so many galleries these days aren't monosyllabic and that they're just like we need like the this kind of artist. This have, kind the, of artist. the artists have no association with each other, no friendship, no aesthetic, no theoretical. It's just like we need a uh, you know 
yeah. and XYZ, and it's a fill in the blank. Uh, oh, and, totally. there's, and there's nothing I've, that I've holds the gallery that, yeah. together other than like, we think we can sell these things to our clientele. I, I have seen that as well. And the weird thing about Clarion is it was in reverse. It all started with friendship. So, mm-hmm. and, and actually, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's, it's an important uh, foundation that we all sort of... Uh, Friends first, as they say. Yeah, and you guys, you guys throw good parties. That too. Uh, I, Babin does, yeah, mm. uh, and in Brussels, my God, Whew. I've never been really. Ooh. Oh my God, I went oh, to. Wow. <laughs> to yeah. See you make that face actually frightens my soul. Oh, yeah, I went to one. I don't think you were there. This was in 2018. Uh, Corcret had an opening, and we had a massive dinner at the upstairs space. This, this, so this gallery. This is, is in Brussels. The gallery is enormous, and there's a cafe, and there's an office, and there's this upstairs space where the dinners are, and it really is just really spectacular and um, exciting and yeah. fun. And also, the fun thing about you know Brussels is, you know, people come from it's it's an hour from everywhere. So you know, friends from Dusseldorf are coming, friends from London are coming, friends from Paris are coming, and everybody. I remember uh, for my opening, everyone showed up, uh, you know, no bags. My friend was wearing like a trench coat, had like a pair of socks in this pocket, uh, <laughs> change of underwear in this pocket, and like a toothbrush up here and was just, you know, ready to. <laughs> That's ready great. To go. <laughs> That's some real dirtbag <laughs> shit. I respect <laughs> it. But they, they <laughs> also, uh, way to travel. in Brussels, they have like a dozen rooms where, you know, people can stay and mm-hmm. hang. Oh, wow. And, Oh, wow. uh, so yeah. so he knew what he was getting into. We... Thanks, <laughs> thanks for the invite. <laughs> it's still there, man. I mean, I'm buying a lot. I guess I need to buy even more. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, before we get into the show that's opening tonight, I want to talk about, I think this is your your last solo show clearing when they had the up, uh, Uptown space. Are we going to talk about yeah. Gammon? Yeah, we're going to talk about some Backgammon. Um, so this show doubles the name of the show, right? Wow. Perfect. Um, it was uh, really a really memorable show for me because it was just like sort of... Uh, Obviously, you can explain this better, but like it just did sort of participatory art in a way that I hadn't seen in New York in a long time, and it did it so effectively. And in the art in the show is so beautiful, but also just just you know participatory. Well, how is it participatory? Nick? Well, you can play. Okay, well, Zach, if you want to maybe jump in. Yeah. So, you know, it was one of those things where you know, ten years before, found this floor tile. I thought, oh, this is familiar. I like it. Take this pattern, appropriate it, uh, put it back on the wall. So this time I was thinking, you know, I'm interested in backgammon. I'm interested in these cycles. And I also loved how on a very small scale, there's this cycle that happens within the game. You know, so mm-hmm. you you start uh, almost exactly where you end. You sort of go around. Um, and so when I saw the uh, this thing, what I had decided to do was to make these... Uh, paintings and then to make these uh custom made steel tables that could perfectly accept one framed painting and a sheet of glass uh and so what you could do is uh you could take the painting off the wall inlay it into the table uh and and use it so you use know it, were, use it as a backgammon table exactly and so there was you know these you know these questions like okay like is the you know work in storage when it's on the wall when it's not being used or is the work like in storage mm-hmm. when it's in the table when it's not being looked at? You know, it's not mm-hmm. And what is use value when it comes to art, right? Because this is actually a practical, usable thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can't use it for anything practical, really, because it's just playing a game. Can be used. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, the idea uh, of, of whether it's in storage on the wall or in storage on, 
on the table is really fascinating to me. And, well, and like artists have sort of explored the idea of storage in various ways. I'm, I'm, I don't really know. Cheney Thompson Chaney, did a great Chaney project. Thompson, yes, it was yes. Al- it was also kind of funny because uh, I was talking to Olivia about, you know, when famously uh, Kippenberger bought a Richter painting for $10,000, put four legs on it and sold it as a table for five. Yeah. And so I was trying to get Olivia with like, you know, additional couple thousand production and the tables to like sell it for less, but it, it, it wasn't happening. So. <laughs> now, no, had you had yeah, a long standing interest in backgammon before these paintings came about based upon the floor uh, tile? Like, did you grow up playing? You know, ga- I, I had played before. And so, um, funny story is, uh, a friend of mine, uh, has a house out in Jersey. And so for years... Shout out Deal. <laughs> yeah. I love Deal. Uh, and so what we would do is uh, every year I'd go out there and she was pretty good. I was okay. And we would just trade back games back and forth, sloshing around checkers. A bit so of tequila. A, lo- a, lot of a lot of tequila. Just sloshing around checkers. Uh, but she was very competitive. So I had this idea and I thought, wouldn't it be funny? So this last day of summer, I have a year until we, uh, we meet again. So what if I just, you know, read a couple books watch some YouTube tutorials uh, and, and, you know, most importantly play with people that are better than me, a lot better than me. And then I come back the next year and just destroy uh 15, zero, 12, zero, five, zero, three, zero done, you know, and it's three in the morning. She hasn't got a game and she wants to, and then we didn't speak for a year after that. And then I wasn't invited again. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Uh, and it was, uh, so this was, you know, uh, backgammon uh inspiration but i you know i just i think it's a beautiful thing i liked looking at it you know um i i thought it lent itself well to sort of the ideas you know essentially all the work deals with cycles you know uh and and actually this show at clearing is sort of is zooming out Mm -hmm. to sort of the biggest cycle that i can wrap my head around which is like the seasons. The weather. The weather. Hell of a segue. The weather. Hell of a segue. Mm-hmm. How did I do? <laughs> well, but, no, I actually wasn't done with the back end of them because the thing is, yeah, that opening was so fun because mm-hmm. it was just everyone's in there, everyone's rolling, like, every, you know, the sound of the dice on the glass and, you know, it gives you something to do besides stand around and, you know, mm-hmm. chat. And then the most fun thing was this guy walks in. I have no idea who he is. And he says, hey, do you want to play? And I was like, uh, I'll play. And he's like, okay, what stakes are we playing for? And I was like, oh, I, I'm not going to, you know, play for, for big money in my, in my exhibition. <laughs> and he's like, okay, let's, let's just play a game. And so he rolls first, he rolls a five, one. And I looked at him and I was like, who are you? Because there was this guy in the seventies named Paul McGrill. And he's the only backgammon, uh, mind writer person whose ideas have stood up to analysis by supercomputers. So essentially when supercomputers were introduced to analyze backgammon moves, to tell you effectively 100% if that move is right or wrong, everybody else is at the window, they're wrong, McGrill was the only one who stood up. And so what he did is he rolled a 5-1, he slotted the 5-point, and I said, who are you? There's only one guy who invented that move and his name's Paul McGrill and he's dead. And he's like, oh, it's funny that you say that because I grew up taking backgammon lessons with Paul McGrill. And then I was like, who the fuck are you? Because that is the only uh, equivalent I could say is that's like walking into some Joe Schmo's house and they like had made a watercolor and you know, they're, they're not known for their watercolors. And you say, Oh, that's a nice watercolor. And they say, Oh, thank you. My teacher's Picasso. You know, it's like the guy who shifted the paradigm, the guy who changed Mm -hmm. the game, the guy who reinvented the wheel. Um, So it turned out, um, 
this guy uh, was very good at backgammon. But uh, I got I got some lucky dice. Did he buy a picture? You know, I don't know. I I think he I think he might have. That's wow, cool. That's, that's fucking cool. That's very cool. But did you end up beating him? So uh, he I rolled what he described as a, a Joker roll, which uh, is what you call like a very low probability roll, which. Mm-hmm. Um, has high effect. Has high effect. So uh, I, I remember it. Well, I rolled a one six and got out and ran, and uh, I ended up beating him by like wow. a couple checkers. But it was, uh, it was a lucky. This, and that's what that's the fun thing about backgammon. So I it always, is. so I always like to say that like chess sucks because like if you have like a chess master playing against just Joe Schmo, there's no chance. A hundred percent of the time, the master's going to win. But with backgammon, there's enough skill involved that when you win you can like own your win mm-hmm. but there's enough luck involved that when you lose you don't have to take any uh you know credit for the loss and so y- you can get some crazy dice and you can beat the best player in the world like in a single game because the universe w- exists within it it's not just human yeah. Yeah, metal, exactly. metal. over the course God, of the universe uh, mm-hmm. or whoever is in there playing as well. over right. the course of a couple games uh, you know uh, you don't stand a chance but that single game that statistically insignificant single game uh, is can be exciting you know? right i was gonna say zach i think i i have beaten you once i think it was like three years ago and i've never even come close since then and there are nights when when you know, I'm playing back game in at, at your studio, and I will lose like 20 games in a row. Yeah, you need to practice. I know, I do need to practice. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not very good. Yeah, Lucy routinely destroys me at back game in also. And most other things. I would <laughs> <know>. <laughs> um, just briefly, though, we should touch on the show that's opening tonight, a new cycle about the seasons. I read the press release, but mm-hmm. why don't we hear it in your yeah, words? Yeah, just, just where, I mean, did, where did this show come from? I mean, what can I say? Um, Except I'm done with the install. Amazing. Happy with it. Great. Uh, what else? Go fucking uh, see it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it, clearing Brooklyn. Uh, it, I yeah, forget open, the address. Open site. Open Johnson tonight. Avenue. This wasn't yeah. going to go online until tomorrow. Where's the party tonight? Uh, <laughs> polls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck at the door, boys and girls. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of funny because I think I might have done that thing. It's kind of a trick where you put as little stuff as possible in as big a space as possible, and mm-hmm. it looks very, very it looks good. so elegant. Uh, you know, I didn't invent this. Uh, I think I saw it for the first time at Dia. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, having said that, I wouldn't even really call it a trick because, you know, this show, it's like, here's the work, the lights are on. You know, I'm, I like to put the stuff out there and, and let it do its thing, and I don't like to... You know, like um, you know, I don't like uh, you know, theatrical lighting and these sort of gimmicky things. Um, sort of like what we're saying about music, where it's like if you're starting to work with theatrical lighting, then you're starting to talk about theater, and then it's like feel. I feel like I don't like to feel manipulated, you know. Mm-hmm. So I like to put the work in the space, turn the lights on, open the windows, and 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 you know, that's the show. Let's see what the people think. Amazing. Yeah. Before we go, we like to ask our guests a sort of broad question to end the, the 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 podcast just what are your what are your go-to favorite restaurants or bars in new york or anywhere in or the world globally right now yeah, yeah. Okay. like if you could only eat or drink at like five or ten places like just or off three. the dome uh, i mean it's it's easy so i used to live in greenpoint mm-hmm. and one day i realized i can walk over the pulaski bridge take the seven train one stop be at Grand Central Oyster Bar in about Let's 10 go. minutes. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and so 
there, at this counter, it's sort of, I think it's called crenellation, where it's sort of like this sort of winding counter where it kind of adds more counter space. And this woman, if you, if you sit at the counter, ask for Mary, uh, and she'll tell you what the best oysters that day, no nonsense. Um, and so I would go there all the time. And once I went, and I, you know, sometimes if you're feeling down, you get a beer and a clam chowder. If you're feeling a little fancy, you get like a martini and a bouillabaisse. Oh, yeah. So I'm sitting at the bar, and this guy uh, in a Yankees hat actually says to me, how is it? And I look over, and I'm not a big Yankees fan. So um, I say, <laughs> it's very good. Thank you. Uh, or I said, I'm very happy. And he left. And then, uh, you know, I asked for the check. And Mary said, oh, that guy already got it. Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff that happens at Grand Central Oyster Bar. So then the next a time... A rare example of a Yankees fan being, uh, being a good person. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you know, it's funny because the last podcast I was on, um, was Caitlin Phillips organized a podcast about baseball. Mm-hmm. And, and I made Montez it... Press Radio. Yeah. And yeah. I made it very clear. I was like, I don't really follow sports. I barely follow baseball. I'm a Mets fan. I follow the Mets, the New York Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Uh, and so, but I was, uh, I was blown away at sort of the, the quality of the other people. I'm sure they were <laughs> legitimate, like New York sports writers that knew everything about everything. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. That, yeah, but, that was fun. I listened to it. It was great. Do you still have a, a, a block of tickets? You go pretty regularly to the Mets. I do. Game. Yeah. So, um, season ticket holder for since, since a while. Um, and it's a lot of fun actually. I think, I think we're going to have a good year. What, Thank uh, you, Uncle Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the Mets. I'm I'm very excited to to introduce baseball to my my daughter when she's born. Hey. It takes a while for them to get into baseball. I'm just gonna say it's a little it's a little slow for the youngins. Yeah. Well, well she's I will gonna say, be a Mets fan. You know, I moved to from LA to New York in 2003 uh, and met. Uh, oh, actually, uh, I want to shout to my friend Eva Lewitt, who has a show opening tomorrow. That's right. Um, at Lauren Augustine. Augustine. Everyone uh, go see Eva's and show. And she was a huge Mets fan. And um, she is the reason why I'm a Mets fan. So Okay. All right. And I like your orange microphone cover. So Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, Mets colors, baby. Mets, yeah. I'm a Red Sox fan. But, you know, if I have to live <laughs> in New York, if my, son has to, if my son has to support a hometown team, which I understand, uh, the Mets are certainly the only honorable choice. All right. We'll take it. Zach, thank you so much for coming. Hey, thank Benet. you, guys. Thanks this for coming, buddy. Such a pleasure. And uh, everyone go see the show at Clearing. Bye-bye. Out. Out.